Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to Episode 3, A Medical Minefield, with excerpts from Drs Jack Havel and Sinead Donnelly. One of the specifics in the End of Life Choice Act is that it includes both euthanasia and assisted suicide as methods of delivery of the treatment. That's significant for a few reasons. A number of jurisdictions internationally only offer assisted suicide where the patient must administer the dose themselves. But the inclusion of euthanasia in our Act means there will be another group of people directly impacted by this law, not just those with terminal illnesses. That group is doctors. And that's because with the method of euthanasia, doctors are the ones that administer the dose. So doctors will be the ones not only diagnosing illnesses and giving a life expectancy or prognosis, they will also become the outworkers of this law. In countries where both euthanasia and assisted suicide are offered, more than 95% of patients opt for the doctor to do the deed. What do doctors say about that? Well, the vast majority seem to be opposed to it. More than 93% of medical practitioners that made a submission to the Justice Select Committee on the Act when it was a bill going through the parliamentary process weren't happy with it. More than 1,600 doctors have signed a petition called Doctors Say No against the Act, and the New Zealand Medical Association has come out strong against it. But that's not to say that all doctors agree. Some believe providing assisted dying purely just continues on the caring of and consideration for patients. I interviewed Doctors Say No spokeswoman Wellington GP Sinead Donnelly and retired emergency room and ACT advocate Dr. Jack Havel, to hear how doctors approach the issue. Chapter 7. Dr. Sinead Donnelly. Can you tell me the difference between a diagnosis and prognosis, and how accurate are prognoses anyway? Diagnosis is saying what illness you have, like you go for a test and you have the coronavirus. That's what's wrong with you. The prognosis is how you're going to do, like you may get better, but it will take a few days. And we make those assessments based on your age, how healthy you are, any previous illnesses, things like that. But it still has an element of guesswork involved. From what I've read so far, it seemed a six-month terminal prognosis was too shifty to peg eligibility for requested death on it. What does Sinead think? We consider prognostication as an art, not a science. It's a guess. The literature around this topic says that our chances of being right within hours or a day or two, we could possibly figure that out, but not months. It becomes far less accurate. It's impossible to say someone definitely has six months to live. And because of this, Sinead says it's definitely not a safeguard like the EOLC Act suggests. 
If you could plug facts and information into a computer about a person and it comes up with a complete and accurate analysis and a date they will die, well then you could make that a law. But every person is different. International reports suggest this reality. According to the American Journal of Medicine, 11 published studies indicate misdiagnosis occurs anywhere from 10 to 15% of the time. The US State of Washington Death with Dignity Act report annually records information about everyone who has requested assisted suicide in the state. Washington State offers assisted suicide only as an option and patients take the drug home with them and ingest it when they want to. Its law also includes the six-month terminal prognosis criteria. The results are interesting. In the five years from 2013 to 2018, a total of 116 people who had requested assisted suicide lived longer than six months. Some lived years longer, and that number doesn't even take into consideration those who chose to end their lives early. Who knows how many would live beyond the six months given to them by doctors? I don't know if it brings relief or concern that prognosis is that inaccurate. It'll certainly make me think twice about ending my life on a doctor's report if I ever get a bad one. It also makes me seriously question whether we should be using this as a measurement. There's a number of concerns I have about the EOLC Act like this, Sinead says. Like the fact it will directly impact the patient-doctor relationship. When euthanasia is on the table, a patient will say, I wish it was all over and I want euthanasia. If this law is passed, no longer will we be allowed to engage with the patient in a normal therapeutic way and say, let's explore that and work deeply. We are required to move along once they have requested it into the process. We are no longer professionals using our clinical judgment. We're technicians. Sinead says when patients explain they've had enough of life, she gently and carefully explores why. After many years of experience, I know this approach works. The greatest need in my experience is for people to be truly heard and listened to, not abandoned. If Sinead thinks a doctor's right to objection isn't a good safeguard, then what about the safeguards around protecting people from coercion? People yearn so much to receive care unconditionally that they are acutely sensitive to any sign of being a burden. If they sense that this close down, retreat and pain increases, there is no doubt coercion happens in everyday life. If there's a chance that the law is weakening the protection it has to the vulnerable, it is unacceptable. But there are safeguards to detect external pressure on the patients. Dysfunctional ones, Sinead says. Also, pressure is very difficult to detect and requires a long-term relationship between doctor and patient. In Oregon in 2017, the median doctor-patient relationship before an assisted suicide prescription was just 10 weeks. Increasing numbers of people in Washington and Oregon have named being a burden on family and friends as one of the main reasons they opted for assisted suicide. In the state of Washington in 2018, this was 51% of the people who received a lethal prescription. In fact, inadequate pain control or fear of it was 38%. Pain control has been cited by almost everyone advocating for assisted dying. It's a contributing factor for bad deaths in New Zealand with Mary Panko saying around 6% of people have pain or suffering that can't be controlled by medication. I asked Sinead if this is true, and shouldn't they have access to assisted dying? Those who specialise in palliative care say they feel they have all the tools they need to attend to someone's pain. 
They know how to and can administer medication that will help. Suffering is a little more subjective. We can't say we can relieve all suffering, yet there is a lot we can do. But when pain or suffering is too great, there are times when you can give palliative sedation. It's given in a very small percentage of cases and basically puts the person into a coma. But you are doing it to relieve their symptoms and let nature take its course. And it's reversible. You aren't causing death. No palliative care doctor or nurse would tolerate being in front of someone with unbearable suffering and doing nothing. There is always something we can do. Chapter 10. Dr. Jack Havel. Dr. Jack Havel's formidable voice is equipped with 30 years of experience as an intensive care medicine specialist. Now retired, he's the co-author of book Dying Badly, organiser of the Doctors Say Yes Letter, and former president of the End of Life Choice Society. He has a down-to-earth demeanour and doesn't mind sporting a loud 1980s retro jumper while at his home in Hamilton. It certainly keeps me alert for the duration of our Skype call. Why is Jack so invested in this law change? After years working in intensive care, he eventually wondered if, at times, keeping people alive was actually helping them. I'd regularly see a person being taken off the respirator and it would result in their death. We called it passive euthanasia, but you were actually doing something that caused death. Usually it would be done after talking to their family if the patient wasn't well enough to consent. Sometimes it was the patient themselves requesting it. It all started my thinking. That and the thought of possibly living with the likes of severe dementia would be intolerable to Jack. If I couldn't recognise my family and was incontinent and had to be helped out of bed, I wouldn't want anybody to resuscitate me. I'd like to have the option of an advanced directive for assisted dying to ask, when I reach this stage, could you please help me die? That advanced directive isn't included in the EOLC Act, but it is written into a number of equivalent laws internationally. The withdrawal of care is an active thing. People talk negatively about assisted dying being an active thing you want from the doctor, but it's not that different. A lot of the concepts aren't new. Jack says withdrawing treatment and assisted dying are both done to relieve suffering. No one wants to kill or murder anybody, it's just what you do to help. And that's something Jack says palliative care specialists struggle with, always claiming they never intend to kill, and always promising to help relieve suffering. But there's a group of people whose suffering can't be relieved. Even with palliative sedation, all they're doing is pretending they're helping the patient and family in their suffering. The family just sits there for a week or two while the patient is slowly dying. There's also many people who don't get sedation and suffer from a lot of other things, not just pain. Things like the indignity of incontinence, hallucinations, and going in and out of consciousness. It can be a traumatic time, and family are just sitting there wishing it were the end. What's the use of that? Jack says he's confident a lot of doctors will come on board if the act is passed. At the end of the day, there's going to be a need for a pool of doctors willing to participate if this law passes. I think there will be. There could be some difficulties to get enough doctors in rural areas, though. Some opponents complain, saying there will only be a few doctors doing all of the work. Well, whose fault is that? The EOLC Act says doctors are not allowed to initiate a conversation about assisted dying, but Jack says that condition is stupid. When you're talking to a patient, you want to discuss all their options. People just put that in the law because they are worried about doctors pressuring patients. 
but the last thing a doctor wants to do is help a patient die. Another beef jack has with the act is the criteria of the six-month prognosis. There's a group of patients that are suffering immensely, like those with motor neuron disease, where they get weaker and weaker and might go on for a few years. They don't meet the criteria and are the sorts of people who will continue to commit suicide. He says while the opponents are always talking about how this will encourage suicide, those in favour of the law are trying to discourage it. But isn't there a very clear similarity between assisted dying and normal suicide? Jack says no. There is confusion in terminology. Suicide is done usually by a mentally unstable person. Almost all suicides are done by irrational people and they happen quickly without the other people's involvement. They cause a lot of heartache and grief to the remaining family. He says they're done by people who could have had the option of living on if they went to the right places to get support. Assisted dying is different because you are actually a rational person. You're going to die anyway. Although you may not die for several years, or in this law, for six months, you just want to avoid suffering, so you consult medical practitioners. So when you get down to it, it's really just offering people the choice. You're not even offering people a choice. You're giving people the option of the choice. You're not going out there saying, you should do this, but just making it possible for a person to take this route. I wonder how Jack reconciles the potential for error if it really all comes down to just offering an option. You've got to look at the bigger picture. Let's say somehow someone slides through the cracks. I don't know how it would happen, but just suppose they would have lived for three years instead of six months. Why should you disadvantage all those other people for the sake of a very occasional thing that goes wrong? Jack says if we applied that theory to cardiac surgery, which is high risk, we wouldn't be operating on hearts at all. How safe do we say a law has to be before we are comfortable with saying it's good, he asks. Doctors and health practitioners will have a huge load of responsibility if the End of Life Choice Act is voted through, and they bring a lot of wealth to this discussion that is really heard. I found it interesting that not all advocates for the End of Life Choice Act are happy about the specifics of the law. Jack, for example, wants advanced directives included, and for the doctor to be able to bring it up uh, when speaking with the patient. It makes me wonder if people like Jack will be satisfied with what the law allows, or if they'll want to see it changed. I also wonder about some of the comments made around the family sitting and watching the patient die. It's a scenario I've heard many times while travelling across New Zealand speaking on my book tour. Patients are dying slowly and families are finding the process taking longer than expected or desired and it's difficult. And while I understand the difficulty of sitting in that situation, being there myself, it also concerns me that it could create tremendous pressure for someone to consider assisted dying so as not to be a burden. For me, that dynamic changes the issue from being about the patient's dignity and care to being about someone else's problem. It's important to note, within the End of Life Choice Act, doctors will be given the option to object to participating in performing assisted dying, but they will have to refer their patient to an oversight committee who will supply the name of a doctor willing to participate Interestingly, in jurisdictions overseas which have legalised equivalent laws, there is only a very small pool of doctors willing to participate. In Ontario, Canada, for example, where there is a population of 14.5 million people, 137 doctors are on this list willing to provide euthanasia. 
and 30 of those doctors will only provide a second patient assessment, not administer the injection themselves. The current playing field in New Zealand looks like we will have a very similar scenario. The outworking and impacting of this law on the medical field will be significant, and that's why we need to get informed and listen to experts. In the next episode, we will explore a driving concept behind the End of Life Choice Act, Offering Choice, with Queen's Council member Grant Illingworth. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of The Final Choice book from your local bookstore or online at thefinalchoice.nz, where an ebook version is also available. <laughs>